unless someone comes forward and says that this occurred in the middle of the night, in the middle of the ocean, it's unlikely to be discovered. Now, the problem is for every case that is reported and reported accurately, how many cases are being set up with the ambition of either getting revenge or, or greed and getting a big payout from the, from the US authorities? And we've seen a lot of that, which is why me personally takes the view that while I'm in favor of whistleblowing rewards, it's got to be used really judiciously and not just as a, a rubber stamp on any case where there's a quote unquote whistleblower. Welcome to the Shoreline Maritime Risk Podcast. In each episode, we'll look at real-time case studies current events, and speak to the experts dealing with critical risks at sea. What really happens when a crisis strikes at sea? And what can you do to protect your ship? Welcome to this, the 14th episode in the series of Shoreline's Maritime Risk Podcasts. I am your host, Captain Thomas Brown. And in setting the scene for this podcast, I rather nostalgically reflect on the fact that I left the sea in 1997 a quarter of a century ago, to start my career in marine insurance. At that time, serving as a senior deck officer on board vessels trading to the US, I was acutely aware of the risk I ran of serving significant jail time in the US if I was caught up in a MARPOL investigation and subsequently found guilty of a MARPOL violation by US prosecutors. Recently, I've noted a spate of MARPOL violation cases in the US and pondered whether much has changed in the intervening 25 years since I was last at sea. In this podcast, we will attempt to answer this question with the expert assistance of George Chalos, founding partner of the US maritime law firm, Chalos & Co. George will hopefully bring us up to date with the ongoing issues insofar as they relate to MARPOL violations in the US. George has spent a lifetime defending the interests of ship owners and seafarers alike when caught up in MARPOL prosecution stateside. Most investigations, and when warranted, subsequent prosecutions, often arise from irregularities in written entries in the oil record book and whistleblower reports. Although not squarely within Shoreline's remit as an Open 90 COFA guarantor, we do recognise the connection this difficult subject has with a myriad of important issues including the environment, the law and the significant human cost of these often difficult and damaging cases. Nice to speak with you, George. It's been a long time since I was working at the P&I Club and had a good fortune to cross paths with you. Many, many years have passed since that time when you've honed your skills, particularly around this, this very difficult and often polarizing subject of, of MARPOL violations and defended the interests of many ship owners, ship managers over the intervening years. It's great to catch up with you today and, re and really just to sort of circle back on, on this uh, ever-present issue that just doesn't seem to be going away, you know, notwithstanding the, the way in which uh, enforcement is applied in the US as a deterrent to the ongoing issue of, of MARPOL violation. So perhaps you could just um, begin the, our conversation by looking at, you know, sources of shipboard pollution and how, how they may differ between the accidental and the in intentional, perhaps. Hi, Captain Tom. Thanks very much. Yeah, I'd be very happy to visit on those subjects. There is a distinction with the difference to be made between accidental pollution incidents and, and intentional pollution incidents. 
and by definition, the accidental incidents arise, but maybe mere negligence or a mistake, right? Uh, and you don't mean to do it. The intentional discharges are totally different, wherein someone takes a decision, usually a local decision on the vessel, that, hey, we have this waste stream that needs to be addressed. We're unable to do it on board either with the existing equipment or in the uh, allowable time in which to do it, or just out of sheer laziness. And then uh, a decision is taken to just discard whatever it may be into the sea. What we see oftentimes, uh, at least in the U.S. enforcement arena, is engine room waste streams being discharged intentionally to the sea. Sometimes it's bilge water. Sometimes it's sludge. Sometimes on tank ships, it's it's slops or other cargo wastes and materials. We've also seen good old-fashioned garbage going over the side. So it, it's it's a huge subject matter to tackle, but there are distinctions with differences between the accidental discharges and the intentional discharges. Yeah, thanks for that. And I think you know that segues nicely into really looking at at the way in which these matters are treated as a matter of law and, and what the international legal framework is and how that dovetails with the U.S. enforcement framework. So perhaps we could look at the way in which MARPOL regulation applies to ships on the high seas and in turn is then falls within the enforcement arena for the U.S. Coast Guard. Look, the, the MARPOL treaty, I think in its ambition is relatively noble. I think it's low-hanging fruit. I mean, who's going to say, who in their right mind is going to say, oh, yeah, it's a good idea, let's pollute the oceans? No, Nobody, right? So everybody agrees that we want to protect the ocean and we want to make sure we're protecting the environment, not just for ourselves, but future generations. The problem with the treaty and this is 50 years, right? 50 years in the making now. The problem with the treaty is that it's not self-executing, and that's a lot of legal mumbo-jumbo, but basically the signatories to the treaty have to go back to their um, domestic legislators, and they have to create their own version. So the U.S. is slightly different because the, the United States has enacted what's known as the Act to Prevent Pollution from Ships. That's the U.S. version of MARPOL. And while much of it is the same as the treaty, there are some areas in which the U.S. legislation deviates, most notably the whistleblower payment provision. Yeah, I mean, the whistleblower payment provision, of course, is one of the, the thorny subjects associated with with MARPOL um, violations, particularly in the US. And, you know, maybe you could just expand upon that, which is viewed by many, I guess, as a double-edged sword in many respects, because on the one hand, it's, it's employed as a strategy, it seems, by the US administration to curtail these issues of uh, MARPOL violations. And on the other hand, it may have unintended consequences just by the sheer size of the uh, financial reward that many of these whistleblowers are granted in the event that they they come forward, and and you, you know I guess the concern that some may have is that the appeal of that financial reward might persuade a whistleblower 
to not root his observations or concerns via the normal, you know, company compliance officer and channels and back to the flag state of the ship and, and instead, you know, wait in a way to hand over his evidence to the US Coast Guard, which in some, some respects might be too late. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a difficult area to discuss. But, uh, yeah, if we could get your views on that, would be great, George. Sure. So the Act to Prevent Pollution from Ships, it's found at 33 U.S. Code 1908. That's the section of the, the U.S. Code where you'll find these reg- that this law and in the, in the implementing regulations. But it has an A and a B side. One is for civil penalties and the other is for criminal fines. And within that statutory framework, there is the... The, the code provides for anyone giving information that leads to the payment of a civil penalty or a criminal fine, they can be rewarded up to half the amount. So when you have companies that are paying $25 million or $37 million and you've got crew members that are nefarious in their, in their views, they're, they're counting the money how much they're going to get rewarded for reporting a violation, whether or not a violation actually occurs. So as you rightly say, this is a thorny issue, and I'll explain a little bit about that. It is common ground in U.S. legal circles that whistleblower provisions are an important tool for law enforcement. It's also an important tool in civil litigation, like we call them TTAM cases, whistleblower cases, where someone blows the whistle on a company's corrupt practices or practices which are creating unreasonable risks and dangers to employees. And without that potential avenue of reward, many times these bad acts would go without being addressed, right? And the same is true in the law enforcement circles that the for sure the courts for sure the criminal investigators right down the local police departments that the reward or payment programs that some some laws allow is really important because especially in a high seas violations how else would they know about it right unless someone comes forward and says that this occurred in the middle of the night in the middle of the ocean it's unlikely to be discovered now the problem is for every case that is reported and reported accurately, how many cases are being set up with the ambition of either getting revenge or, or greed and getting a big payout from the from the U.S. authorities? And we've seen a lot of that, which is why me personally takes the view that while I'm in favor of whistleblowing rewards, it's got to be used really judiciously and not just as a a rubber stamp on any case where there's a quote-unquote whistleblower. Yeah, I think we can all concur with that. And, you know, it almost seems like, you know, what I've heard recently at a conference is like a nuclear payment option. I mean, it's the quantum of the reward is so eye-wateringly large that it has to have a sort of compelling effect on, 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 on some people, perhaps, you know, t- to come forward in order to, to gain financial recompense for the whistleblowing. Yeah, well, Captain sure. yeah, yeah, Tom, that's for sure. But you know what we find as the worst unintended consequence? I, I would say, in our experience, 
that most, and I don't say all, but I would certainly say most, an overwhelming majority of the organizational clients that we represent, they genuinely want to comply. And they spend a tremendous amount of time, money, and effort to uh, train their people, to give them the tools to comply, to provide oversight and refresher training, and to do the job properly, right? That's genuinely the ambition. And I also think that most people at sea want to do the job properly. But when and if there is some suspicious behavior, this is where the hard choice comes in. Does the individual who suspects misconduct come forward? And if he, if he or she comes forward, what's in it for them coming to the company versus what's in it for them coming forward to the U.S. Coast Guard? And so you can see how it, the unintended consequence here is that people know about misconduct. They don't like the misconduct, but yet they rather wait till they come to the U.S. because at the end of the day, they may get a payout that will essentially be their retirement program. They'll never have to work again, and not, not another day in their life, versus coming forward telling the company, the company takes remedial actions, and they get a big thank you from the company, but yet time to go back to work, right? It's, it's a really difficult choice. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I totally see that. And I, I, I guess it comes down largely to the investment in the company's compliance culture and, and the, the amount of training they do around around compliance, you know, whether that's, you know, whether that's MARPOL violations for overboard discharges or, or garbage or, you know, whatever. It, it's about, it's really about ingraining within the shipboard officers, crew, management team, superintendency, you know, the, the need to really comply with the international uh, regulations and, and be informed about, you know, what, what it actually means. What is the reality of choosing A rather than B. Uh, uh, what I mean by that is, you know, choosing to not follow company procedure, not to report uh, within the company, but to defer the reporting of that to an external enforcement body in the US. I mean, that although it comes with a, a very sort of attractive financial payment, there are lots of other issues around the legal proceedings, detainment in acting as a witness, detained in, in, in detainment in the US for long periods of time. Whereas, were you to report it internally, then that would be a matter perhaps for reporting up the chain to the flag state. The flag state would perhaps investigate that, and there may be some remedial requirements placed upon the ship owner and his ship by the flag state. But I'm assuming that once once the flag state has presided over such a matter, that you couldn't be retried in the US. Would that be correct? Well, no, uh, that's certainly not been our experience. Ordinarily, the flag state does get involved but only to a limited extent. They look at the facts, they look at the circumstances, and from what we've seen, that their enforcement actions have been limited to the individual seafarer's licensing. There's generally no, no particular fine, and there's no particular penalty other than perhaps losing their license for a period of time, in, in some instances longer than just a short period of time. But I, most black states may pull a, a seafarer's license for six months or a year, but that's about it. The U.S. government, acting through the Coast Guard and the Customs and Border Protection Agencies, take a different view. They recognize that whatever may have occurred on the high seas is beyond 
the reach of the, the U.S. legal system. But what they focus their efforts on is what happens once the vessel sails into U.S. waters. And so while some people view this as a pollution case, that the actual description of the case in the United States is the failure, the knowing failure to maintain an accurate oil record book while in U.S. waters. So the actual nature of the, the case and the crime and the prosecution it is a little bit different. It's not a pollution violation per se. It's a record keeping violation. Yeah, so it's, it's sort of, um, I, I can see that. So basically, you're, you're misdirecting the, the true course of justice in a way by, you know, not acting in good faith or making proper representation or perhaps not cooperating in the right way by the the port state control inspector who may be asking legitimate questions around certain entries in the oil record book or so any i suppose any any attempts made to not be completely 100 100 transparent with the truth may create um, a legal violation within u.s jurisdiction and give you the grounds to make a prosecution under u.s law is, is that a good summary of, of how it works i think it is i think to go one step further, the same conduct can be charged multiple ways. So, for example, a chief engineer doesn't record a discharge in the oil record book or alternatively falsifies, affirmatively falsifies the entries in the oil record book. The vessel sails into the United States and the United States uh, Coast Guard detains the vessel and expands their initial port state control inspection to an expanded MARPOL investigation. Thereafter, they can take the matter and refer it to the Department of Justice for prosecution. And again, we're talking about the same exact record book and the same exact underlying conduct can be charged not only as a substantive violation of the act to prevent pollution from ships, again, the knowing failure to maintain an accurate oil record book while in the U.S., but it can also be charged as a false statement under 18 U.S. Code Section 1001. It can also be charged obstruction of an agency proceeding, and it can also be charged as a Sarbanes-Oxley violation, which is a very serious felony crime where individuals can go to jail up to 20 years. So again, the reason why I bring this up is the same exact conduct can be charged and often is charged multiple different ways so that you think, oh, it's just a simple little record book case, but yet you're facing four, six, eight, 12 felony counts with major, major penalties, both for the individuals and for the companies through vicarious means. Yeah, and I think, you know, that brings us on to the sort of wider subject of, you know, sentencing and, you know, the, the concept that, that a sentence can be a deterrent. I mean, this is something that's debated widely in criminal law, particularly, you know, it's, it's been hotly debated here in the UK for many years about, you know, whether, and I guess in the US where the, the incarceration rate for individuals in the US is, is probably higher than, than most other places in the world. And, you know, the question is, you know, does the incarceration, does the, the hefty fine, you know, does it create a deterrence to, to future violations of, of, of you know, of, in this case of MARPOL? I mean, what, what does the frequency of these cases look like? Is it decreasing any? I mean, th these, these whistleblower payments have been in place for quite some time now. So 
if in fact, you know, that is the, the size of these financial penalties and restrictions placed on trading to the US and time in, in jail for those that perpetrate the crime on board the ship. You know, these are all severe penalties and sanctions. I mean, are, are they having a deterrent, deterring type effect? Are we seeing a slowing down of these prosecutions? I don't think so. And I'll tell you that I don't think necessarily the the enforcement actions are a derivative of a lack of interest by the industry. I, I think the industry in the last 25 years I've been doing this has become much more conscious of what's happening on their vessels at sea. I think they've spent a tremendous amount of time and effort to improve processes and, and procedures. I think commitments to budgeting and spending the money that's necessary to properly maintain pollution prevention equipment has been earmarked, at least by most of the companies we deal with. Again, I wouldn't say all, but I would say an overwhelming majority. But I also think that there is a, a twist that doesn't get spoken about very often. And that's when these cases kick off in the US, there's often a pattern to it. It's very rare that you see a, a single case in a single port. It's usually two or three cases in rapid fire succession in the same location with different owners and different companies and different seafarers. But it's often viewed by ambitious investigators and ambitious Coast Guardsmen as a means towards promotion. And the Coast Guard makes no bones about it, that their organization is an up or out organization. And that means if you're not progressing up the chain, you're not getting promoted, you're not long for the service. Wow. So, you know, from there's lots of moving parts here, right? Lots of moving parts that surround the issue of political expedience self-interest, criminal wrongdoing, you know, it's, and then, you know, as we've just discussed, the, the asymmetry really of the size of the reward, which would then def deter somebody perhaps from, as we've discussed just recently about routing their, their complaint or their concerns to the appropriate person within, within the company who one assumes are trying to do the right thing. So there's no easy, quick and quick answer to that, clearly. So maybe we could just talk about what this prosecution like looks like for those involved if they get caught up in such a matter in the U.S. I mean, it's, it's not great, right? No, no, it's terrible, actually. But just to go back to your last point, Captain Tom, at the, at the heart of it all, I, I think the ambition of investigators and prosecutors is irrelevant. I think the uh, noble intentions of the seafarers whether to come forward to the company or, or hold it in their pocket till they come to the U.S. is probably equally irrelevant. The, the underlying issue and, and the, the heart of the issue is it's still happening, right? So that what, what's been done to date to try to deter it and to correct it hasn't achieved the goals that, that Marpol sets out and what everyone for the last 50 years has been jumping up and down about. And I think that a different approach may be necessary to achieve those end game goals. But if your if your vessel gets caught up in one of these investigations, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare from top to bottom. It's a nightmare for the fellows on the ships. It's a nightmare for their families back at home. It's a nightmare for the people in the man owning office and the, the management office. And frankly, it's a, it's a nightmare for the people on the investigative side and the prosecution side, because 
again, like, as you rightly say, there's a tremendous number of moving parts. Yeah, I can I can see that. And what does it look like then for for ships officers and crew if they get caught up in one of these these issue these prosecutions? So the the usual evolution of one of these cases is as follows: the Coast Guard goes on board. They either have a, a tip prior to arrival or they receive one during the initial port state control examination. They try to gather at least some evidence, what they would call reasonable grounds, and then they take a decision to expand the ordinary port state control inspection to an expanded MARPOL investigation. When you get to that stage, there is um, a, a strange change in the paradigm. It's not just your um, Coast Guard blue suits, as we call them, your usual port state control or prevention inspectors. Now they bring out experts that are from the Coast Guard Investigative Service. They are gun-carrying members of law enforcement. There's lots of legal arguments whether or not this is now a criminal case triggering individual rights and, and liberties or not. This is an evolving area of the law. But... Uh, it's not limited to just the Coast Guard. You can also see other investigators from other agencies, such as FBI forensic examiners, coming on board to take mirror images or to confiscate shipboard computers and, and communication systems. On a parallel path, the Coast Guard requests and the Customs and Border Protection Agency must well, revoke the, the vessel's departure clearance so while the vessel is not officially arrested or attached, it is unable to move because its departure clearance is withheld. Now, all this occurs under the, the banner, and as I said before, it's a nightmare for everyone involved, including the investigators, because all this occurs under the banner of the ambition of the Marpole Treaty, and that is to not cause unreasonable delay to the ships. So... These people have to work long hours, sometimes around the clock. And even doing that, it takes at least seven days, sometimes up to two weeks before the ship is then released against what's called an agreement on security. Now, the agreement on security it is the means for the vessel's owner and operator to get the ship's departure clearance returned and the vessel back into service. So Again, a parenthesis here, if the vessels come to the U.S. to load and it's got a perishable cargo on board, you can see the commercial pressure in, in conceding to the terms that are being demanded to get the vessel back into service. Yeah, I, can, I can see that, yeah. And, 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 and I mean, I, I presume that not all of these cases are successfully prosecuted because there must be some which you defended successfully, George. And... In, in those cases, is there any right of recompense for, for the ship owner for his delay, his um, business interruption? Is there any sort of compensatory counterclaim that can be made? Yeah, there is, there is. So under the Act to Prevent Pollution from Ships found at 33 U.S. Code 1904H, H as in hashtag, <laughs> there is the right of a vessel owner or operator to recover damages arising from an unreasonable delay of the ship. So what's important to know here, the, the right to recover is not dependent on a successful defense of the underlying violation. In fact, there can be many cases where 
the, the, the vessel was rightly prosecuted, but the delay to the vessel was excessive. And conversely, just because you win and get acquitted at a trial or the case gets dismissed by the prosecutors voluntarily, that does not mean you're automatically entitled to all your damages. Again, the issue to be looked at by a court in one of those claims is whether or not the delay was reasonable or not. To say it differently, whether it was unreasonable. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. And so just looking forward, you know, there's a couple of areas. There's an evolving legal landscape around the issue of this ESG legislation that's coming in, environmental and social social governance, that all companies, not just shipping companies, are going to have to be adhere to and, and, and it's going to have to be demonstrable that you're doing the right thing for the environment, you're doing the right thing for society, you're treating people well. And I guess, you know, the idea here is that good companies will trade with good companies who, who can demonstrate that. It seems to me that this type of violation, this type of conduct is at odds with, with the whole concept of, of, of ESG legislation. Do you see any overlaps here or any evolving legal issues around? I do in certain aspects of the industry. In the tanker sector, I would say it's more prevalent. When you're dealing with oil majors as your charterers and your customers, I think that there is a deeper focus on ESG issues. But I would also say that's not as consistent as I think people would like to believe it is. We know in a rising market that ships that have had MARPOL violations get chartered pretty quickly by those same customers if, they have, if they're offering a more favorable rate. So it's not quite as altruistic as it may seem. I would say in the bulk carrier market, there's virtually no scrutiny. That's a market-driven decision whether or not to charter one of these vessels or do business with the manager or operator of the ship. But again, though, I think what's really important is the knowledge, right? If there are really dynamite blue chip operators out there that have had not just one of these cases, but multiple of these cases over the course of time, and it's not anything that you can point to as being deficient in their systems or their oversight, these companies really are held hostage by the worst crew member that they have in their, and again, that there are lots of different reasons why a crew member may decide to do something that they shouldn't do, but laziness is right up there on the top of the list. Yeah, I mean, I can see that, and I, you know, I guess that the other issues that we have to be mindful of are really the sort of you know, disruption to world trade that we've seen over the last couple of years. I mean, crews have been on board these ships way too long, right? I mean, they've been on way beyond their, their, their maximum contract length. Some people have been on board for over a year. It's easy for us to sort of say, hey, it's laziness. But, you know, if you've been working, you know, 12 hours a day for more than a year without a break and no, no prospect of getting home anytime soon, then psychologically, you're, you're, you're going to be affected by that. And that may in turn lead to actions that you might not be proud of down the line, right? So it's uh, yeah. lots of different dynamics here at play, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And to be fair, during the pandemic period, there's been a number of these cases, but I wouldn't say that there's been more cases than pre-pandemic. 
and I wouldn't say it's been more cases than now what hopefully is a post-pandemic year. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, it, it is a difficult subject. I think we, you've handled it very well, and I think it's you know it's easily to be polarized one side or the other of the, this particular issue. I think we try to stay on the margin lines where we can. I mean, maybe we should sort of finish the conversation really with some quick tips of, of advice and from your many years looking into these matters. Whether there's obviously no silver bullet as we've discussed, but you must be able to offer some words of wisdom, George, having you know, investigated many of these different cases. Well, yeah, there are, Captain Tom, and I, I think that the best way forward, obviously, is to be vigilant, to ensure compliance, and to double-check what your crew's doing, and it's easy to do, right? It's not that hard to get a copy of the oil record book sent ashore and the sounding logs and even have some of the data from the oil content meter data chip sent ashore so you can do a cross-check. A fourth data point that we often recommend clients to look at is the deck log, because if you've got records from the engine room saying that they were using the oily water separator or using the incinerator, but yet the deck log says the ship was in a force nine storm, you know it's not right. Nobody was using that equipment under those conditions. But most importantly, the advice we give to all our clients, and, and we have had the good fortune of traveling the world and doing awareness seminars and training. The best advice we can give is never bury your head in the sand. If there's something that doesn't look right, investigate it. And if you don't get the answers that are satisfactory or, or complete enough, keep investigating it. The U.S. Coast Guard has a great program for voluntary reporting or voluntary disclosures of suspected violations. And while the actual procedure seems complex when you read it, it's really very simple. It boils down to being as transparent as you possibly can with the Coast Guard for foreign flagships as a port state authority. If your vessel is going to be coming to the U.S., may be coming to the U.S. or is coming to the U.S., and you have a suspected issue of noncompliance on board, we routinely recommend that clients voluntarily disclose it prior to arrival. And with the disclosure, it's not just that, oh, yeah, we had a couple bad guys doing bad things, but actually give some 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 nuts and bolts on the action plan. What is it that you're going to do to correct it? And what is it you're going to do to ensure that it doesn't reoccur? And uh, I don't know how many of these voluntary disclosures that we've made over the years. It's at least dozens, maybe more. But we, we've we've had great success and, and great cooperation with the Coast Guard all around the U.S., whether it be in places like the, the eastern seaboard, the U.S. Gulf, the West Coast, Alaska, Honolulu, even out into American Samoa. They're, they're very, very user-friendly. And our experience has been that they're very receptive to companies that are transparent and are trying to do the right thing. Well, that's encouraging to hear. Um, you know, it's a, a sort of quasi good guy program, I guess, which is the flip side to the to the draconian sanctions that you will face if you do if you fail to engage with the Coast Guard and explain that you've discovered the issue on board and put remedial actions in place, etc. So it's good to hear that you know you can do the right thing and be rewarded for it at, at the end of the day. 
Yeah, well, I would say there's no reward other than they're not going to prosecute you most times. But I think it is really indicative of the intended partnership between the regulators and the industry to do the right thing collectively. I agree totally. Well, George, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for taking time of your busy schedule to discuss this matter. As we said earlier in the, in, the, in the conversation, you know, there is no silver bullet. It's here to stay, this issue, for the foreseeable future. I guess many of the issues have been well rehearsed in the boardrooms of many ship owners and managers around the world. And I guess it's over time there'll be greater investment in training, education uh, and advice that those on boards receive. And, and we can only hope that in the end, these cases become fewer and far between. Thank you. That's for sure. Have a great day, George. Thanks very much. Thanks, Captain Tom. All the best. We'd like to thank the show's sponsor, Maritime Insurance Solutions Limited. The world and life at sea is changing on a daily basis. Shipping companies and owners are facing evolving threats from political risk to increased maritime cyber risk. Shoreline has the maritime insurance answers you need to make sure your company is covered when crisis strikes. Shoreline are providers of specialist maritime cybercrime and crisis response insurance policies. To learn more about these specialist covers, visit www.shoreline.bm today.